0: Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is another episode of the Vine to Mind Podcast. And today you have not only Maddie and Ethan, but a very special guest.
1: That's absolutely right, Maddie. Today we are joined by Landon Donley, currently the winemaker at Trincaro Napa Valley up in St. Helena, California, with over a decade of experience in this amazing wine industry. We hope you enjoy. All right, folks, we are back, and uh, today we are joined by a special guest, uh, Landon Donley. How you doing? Doing great. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I know we kind of forced you to do this. Oh,
2: this is forcing. <laughs> Anytime I get to spend with you two and talk wine, this yeah. is great. It's like We're, another
0: day with just with microphones in front of us. Exactly. So, yeah. You're
1: too nice. You'll get the check in the mail soon. <laughs> uh, we pay him to say this, folks. So, uh, those who listen to our, our podcast know that Maddie and I are fans of really any kind of white wine that has high acid, the crispy white wines, especially Sauvignon Blanc. And there's a lot of special Sauvignon Blancs that Maddie and I have had along the way. Um, however, we, we did have one that we, we brought today for Landon because it's it's special to all of us. This is a wine I've had maybe one time in my life. I don't really remember the profile of it, so it's kind of nice to enjoy glass with you today, Landon. And I know this wine is especially special to you. So this is the I-Block Sauvignon Blanc.
2: You know, this, this is such a unique wine for, for Napa Valley. In fact, when I look at this, to me, it's one of the gems that I'm surprised doesn't really get talked about as much as it should. You know, in my mind, I think this is the, the oldest Sauvignon Blanc vines in Napa Valley. And, you know, it was really, I think, a, um, a vision from Robert Mondavi to really take this grape to the next level. Because from what I've, the, reading, the readings I've done, you know, when this was planted, which was what, was in the 40s, does that sound right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sauvignon Blanc wasn't really the hip grape then. And not only what did he plant this, he planted it at Tokalon, which is one of the, you know, the most prized vineyards in Napa Valley, and did it head trained, dry farmed. So now that we can actually take and, and enjoy this wine, it's just amazing to me because it shows Sauvignon Blanc and what it can do in Napa on great soil, um, and then with old vines as well. So um, to me, this is a wine that I would like to drink over time. Like, this isn't just pull the cork, have a glass. This is pull the cork, decant it, and then drink it over two or three hours.
0: That's exactly what we've got right in front of I us know. here. So, <laughs>
2: so we actually are drinking out of a decanter, and thank you both for decanting this, and yeah. thank you for, for bringing this wine. This is, uh, this is such a treat. Yeah, Well,
0: absolutely. it's a treat
1: to have you here.
0: It really is. Uh, yeah, because we've known you for, what, like a little over a year now, it's I think. It's been a year, yeah. And we're fortunate enough to get to see you on, if it's not like a daily basis, it's like a weekly basis, and I want to say... Probably within, I don't know, one of the first couple of days that we got to talk with you, solving a block came up and Ethan and I've always loved this grape, especially cause it's in our own backyard. But you've really just shined such a great light on this, and just brought so much more passion. And now, next thing you know, Ethan and I are talking about clones and how much we owe to use with each clone. And so I love it. I we've love come it. a long ways with it, so uh, we thought this would be really fitting um, to get to enjoy with you. So, guys, if you haven't gotten a cue yet, I think y'all, for all the listeners out there, go grab a glass of Sauvignon Blanc and sit back and uh, yeah, enjoy this conversation with Lynn. Let's taste together for sure. Yeah. So,
1: Lynn, I think it's only right to share with the people that are listening sort of your background, you know, growing up, was there wine on the table?
2: You know, there really wasn't actually. Okay. Um, my parents weren't really big drinkers. Um, the, probably the only wine we actually had in our house was, a, um, a box of white Zinfandel in the fridge. My mom <laughs> would go. occasionally grab a little glass and, and that was it. Um, yeah, there wasn't, um, it wasn't a frequent for my family and, uh, and Yeah.
0: I think that's kind of something we all three have in common then <laughs> <laughs> look at us now, yes. but you're a California native, right?
2: I am. So I grew up in a small town called Meadow Vista. Okay. And if you are say in Sacramento, going up to Tahoe off of interstate 80, it's about halfway in the middle. And so it's in the foothills.
0: Gotcha. So you grew up snowboarding, good bit then. Yes,
2: whatnot? I was, I was the outdoor kid. I mean, we were really big into, you know, lake sports, um, you know, up into Tahoe almost every week we could lots of snowboarding. Um, yeah, small town, fun, you know, building forts, all that good stuff as well.
1: So that's still something you do. Of course. Yeah. yeah Cause you, you've let me your snowboard before. <laughs> you somehow <laughs> trusted me to do that and yep. it did not come back broken. No, it came back
2: great. <laughs> um, yeah, no, snowboarding is great. I, I love the outdoors. It's something that's, that uh, uh, I really enjoy doing and, you know, right now, uh, we live so close to Lake Berryessa that yeah. we spend a lot of our time on the lake actually doing wake surfing, which is, uh. Something my wife and I really enjoy, and we're getting the kids involved as well.
1: That's awesome. Yeah.
0: we did never given that one a go. So one of these days. So now, and you also had a pretty cool experience when you were younger that Ethan and I recently learned about. Um, and that really got you kind of into the wine, well, not into the wine industry at a young age, but just exposed to what this valley is, right?
2: Yes. And I think I know where you're going with this, Maddie. Yeah.
0: You know where we're going. <laughs> yeah. For those of that don't know it, Lannon was a Hollywood star. Um, so let's talk about that. <laughs>
2: I never got an Academy Award, but I think I got my name in the credits, So that's all that mattered, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome.
2: Yeah. So I had a, you know, three minutes of fame, let's call it. Um, I, I had the, the great pleasure of being in the movie, walking the clouds as an extra with my grandfather. And my grandfather has a 55 acre ranch, which is just over the Napa County line in a town called Middletown. And, um, the producer on this movie found my fa- grandfather's ranch. He is really into farming the old school way with horses, wagons, and more of that kind of primitive style. And so he asked to use all of this, um, livestock and equipment for the movie. And so we got to actually be on the set for about a month and um, and see how the movie's being filmed. Yep.
1: Was the movie set in Napa Valley?
2: Yeah, it was actually uh, on Mount Veeder Winery up in Mount Veeder, Appalachian. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so really, as, as a crow flies, it's about, about a half mile from our Wall Road Vineyard. Interesting. It is. I know things come full circle, right?
1: Okay, oh, so awesome. were, were they picking grapes? I'm, I've not seen this movie.
0: Oh, you've got to watch it.
2: Yeah. Are they
1: making wine in the movie?
2: They are. They are. So it's about a family that has this, this vineyard. Okay. And um, it, is, it is a love story, so it's a little slower, but uh, it's, um, it's great because it really kind of portrays this family business of um, you know, farming, growing grapes, and keeping this family kind of legacy together. And so, of course, there's a, there's a few you know, turns in it where Keanu Reeves comes in, this outsider, who falls in love with the daughter, and the, grand- and the dad's not having it, and so there's conflict there. But it really, it really shows the, um, the magic of the industry. And as a kid, you know, being on this set, um, I was there for a month, a lot of downtime. So I got to kind of walk these vineyards and, and then watch all these, um, these different scenes being filmed. And it was really just special. You know, I remember kind of coming home to my parents' house after it was was done and, uh, was like, mom, the wine industry is pretty cool. And, and, you know, there's a lot of things I gained from that, that I think kind of just established a a love for this industry. Yeah. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Now there's one part of the movie Oh, I just thought it was uh, was too funny. So it's when (laughs) uh, early in the morning, they they say that there's a chance for frost. And so the alarms go off and everyone goes outside. It looks like they have like these like wings on. They're flying through the vineyards. butterfly wings, yes. yes. exactly. So uh, is that something that you practice here to this day? Is that what you learned from a young age? I think
2: Hollywood uh, had a little (laughs) twist on that, Maddie, because it's not something we've seen yet. Now, you know, the smudge bots are part of it. And you don't see them as much anymore because they they produce such a... um, you know, kind of a nasty smoke, but, uh, but the process and how they did it, I think that's, uh, Hollywood that's took a Hollywood. spin on it.
0: Well, it's yeah. kind of cool. I really, there's not that many movies that have been filmed here in Napa Valley. We have what there's bottle shock. Yes. Uh, there's this one and there's like the recent like wine country. Right. But, uh, but you were, you know, you were in the midst of that back in what? 94, 95. Yes. Whenever that I was a little
2: Phil. I think I was what?
1: 11, 12 years old.
0: That's awesome. Yeah,
1: it was amazing. Wow. So how in the movie, how did they use the grapes? I mean, Were they using Mount Vitor Winery's grapes? So
2: it's funny. um, The scenes that they actually filmed, the grapes were not actually in Verasion at the time. Interesting. So I remember they actually took store-bought grapes, and they twisty-tied them onto the vine so that when you look at it, it looks like the vine is full with grapes. Oh,
0: my goodness. Yeah. How
2: big were these grapes? Oh, they were pretty big. I remember thinking that, I'm sitting there eating them off the vine, and they're like, hey, stop. That's our props. Don't touch those. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It It was pretty comical. Yeah, but-
0: so at a young age, at this point, uh, Landon Donnelly, you know, 11, 12 years old has finally been exposed to vineyards and uh, a little bit, a little glimpse of the winemaking process, but you were still not probably set in going to this industry at this point.
2: No, it was, you know, um, I, I always kind of thought big business okay. and a lot of people told me, Hey, get involved in business, get a business degree, see where that takes you. I think you'd be really good on that side of it. I kind of followed that dream or I followed the advice, I should say, and went to, um, Long Beach state. For a degree in business management. Mm. But during that process is when I was truly exposed to wine. And I got a job uh, for a place in uh, Laguna Beach called The Montage. Now The Montage had just been built. It's a beautiful resort that sits on the coast. And they have an amazing um, uh, wine selection there. And so I came on as a bartender with the pure goal of just making as much money as I can at nighttime so I can go to school during the day. And they said, well, if you're going to work here, you're going to learn about wine. And so I was really encompassed with some very passionate people that showed me the wines of the world. And, um, very shortly after being employed by them, I, the, 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 the match got lit and I was like, this is amazing. And you know, the thing about it that I still remember this to this day was when you learn about wine, the more, you know, the more you don't know.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that
2: right there, that inspiration just keeps you learning and and excited about this industry. Yeah. And so I was, I was gung ho pumped that I was going to be in this industry, I just didn't know where. Okay. So, um, first thing to do is learn more about wine. So I hopped on a plane, went to Europe for two months, backpacked around 11 countries with my two good friends. Wow. When we got home, I had more knowledge under my belt. They were sick of wine. I'll tell you that. Cause they, <laughs> both these guys could care less about, you know, seeing Chianti and Bordeaux and these, yeah. and, um, you know, talking shop about wine. But, um, yeah, the, the, the passion was there. And so then at that point I was like, well, which industry, which part of the industry do I go into?
1: So why did you pick winemaking over sales?
2: Well, so uh, sales is where I dabbled into it first. Okay. And I, I, I worked on the retail side. Um, I worked in distribution um, for American wines, which is a fine wine portfolio for Southern Wine Spirits mm-hmm. in the uh, Malibu and Santa Monica area. And I love that, but I found that most buyers I was talking to were not into the nuts and the bolts of winemaking like I was. I remember walking to this one account, telling him what the pH was and the Oak program, <laughs> and he stopped me in my tracks and said, how much does it cost? And what's the score? Mm. And that, that kind of resonated. Like, how do I, how do I, how do I communicate and how do I talk about wine? Cause that's really what I want. And so I met some really, um, great winemakers along the way. We, um, had done some wine dinners with them and they basically said, Hey, you're going in a direction where I think you should take two steps back and look into winemaking. And they both pointed me in the right direction of going back to school. And so one day I made up my mind, I quit my job and moved to Fresno.
0: Wow. So Fresno state. Yeah.
2: Fresno state. Go Bulldogs. Bulldogs. Yes. Yeah,
0: Oh, there we go. Yes. I love it. So, okay. So you went back to school. Does that mean, is that in two more years of school or how did that look?
2: Yeah. So it worked out well because I already had my degree in business management from Long Beach state. So all my lower division were already knocked out. Okay. So I really just got to focus on the winemaking part of it. And so I was at Fresno for about two and a half years.
0: And what brought you to Fresno state then versus, I mean, obviously we're blessed here in California with many great options for winemaking school.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so advice from some colleagues for sure, but I love the fact that it has a full functioning winery on campus. Mm. And so you're learning the theory in the classroom and then the practical out in the winery and you know, people told me this is, you're getting a degree in this, but this really is a trade. You need to learn how to operate pumps. You need to learn what, how to, how to, um, manage fermentations. You know, you need to learn how to spray off macro bins for six hours a day when the fruit comes through and be okay with it. And at at Fresno state, I mean, I think we made 6,000 cases of wine all done by the students and that was over the course of, let's see, I think there was like 20 something, 25 wines we were making. So the exposure is amazing. Yeah. And so when I left Fresno, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to be one of the hired interns that worked there. And so I had three harvests under my belt of just full on hands on winemaking. Um, and then the theory to back it up.
1: So how do they determine the style wines that are being produced at on campus? Is it just one professor or is it kind of like a collective?
2: So, yeah, there's a handful of professors. Um, the school actually has a full time winemaker. Oh, cool. And this full time winemaker also teaches classes. And so, uh, throughout, you know, call it, we're on a Tuesday, you know, crushing Syrah, uh, I have a question, Hey, what yeast are we gonna use are going to use? I can ask, you know, my professor slash the winemaker there and get great answers. So the, the plethora of knowledge that we were exposed to was amazing.
0: And so was, you said you're an intern at this winery. Yep. So were all students involved at this winery or was it an, like an option, like an add on? Yeah. Or? You had
2: to do a very small amount to actually graduate. Mm. I think some students took it as, uh, a great opportunity to learn. Others were kind of less involved. Um, so, as an intern, basically, I was there and I worked on average. I think it was twenty five hours a week minimum, but I usually was putting in a lot more than that. Um, yeah, so I was I was definitely committed.
1: Were there vineyards on campus too to work with?
2: Yeah, we did yeah. a vineyards. It was mostly experimental. Okay. So a lot of the fruit came from the Duarte Nursery. Oh yeah. Which is fantastic. They you know obviously have um, this awesome grape breeding program. And so they supply a lot of the, the country with grapevines. but a lot of those vines, you know, that they're using to produce these produce fruit. Yeah. And so they were very generous enough to, to send this fruit down to Fresno State.
1: So it seems like a really interesting program because if is. you want to, you know, focus on winemaking that I've had that, but then they also have the vineyard to work on. If you want to get into viticulture, you can exactly. learn all that part of the winemaking industry as well.
2: Yeah. It's a full encompassing program for sure. Yeah. And you know, one aspect that doesn't get talked about that I think is really unique is, you know, we got grapes that sometimes were on, you know, I five for two and a half hours got to us at, wow. you know, 95 degrees <laughs> and we have to take and make, um, you know, an enjoyable product out of this basically. And so a lot of times we're working with grapes that might be on a quality of like five that we got to try and make a seven. Okay. So we learned a lot about the techniques around that. And I think that's really neat.
0: Yeah, firsthand for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, sounds like a great program. And then post graduation, so after a couple of years living in Fresno, which first off, how do you like living in Fresno? Yeah, Fres- so Fresno's Fresno, Fresno's good. Yeah,
2: yeah, I mean, there's um, th- th- there's mountains nearby. Um, it's really good people. The people of Fresno are very um, positive, supportive people. I, yeah, and because I worked at a restaurant okay. in Fresno as well called the Chef's Table, um, and it was uh, probably I think the premier fine wine dining, um, restaurant there. And so I got a good exposure to the people there and, and selling them wine. And, uh, yeah, Fresno's great.
1: So you benefited a lot from this program, not only with having that experience, of what you did afterwards, but you met the love of your life there too, uh-huh. right? <laughs> yeah, yes. Here's
2: a story for us. Yes, I did. So okay. I met my wife, Sarah at Fresno state. Sarah was, um, came to Fresno to learn winemaking because her family has a, a winery in Illinois. And so, um, she came there and we met actually in the program and there was one moment, you know, being an intern, I was kind of more of uh, the leads, let's see, uh, in the cellar. And so I was instructed to teach her how to clean a pneumatic press. Now, for those of you who <laughs> don't know, this pneumatic press fun. is also called a bladder press. It's a, uh, it's a big cylinder with a big bag in it. And you have this little bitty door you got to crawl into and you literally have to pick out every seed that's, that's on the screen. So let's just say it's a, the cleaning process takes about an hour and a half, and Sarah and I were tucked in this press together. So a few a few sparks went off, and uh, we started dating after that. It's
0: very close quarters there for the first hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yes. I feel like your life is already like a Hollywood movie right now. Yeah, oh, You were in one oh, <laughs> as a young kid, and yeah, met uh, your wife there. That's awesome. And so then post-graduation, first step for you was to go to Australia. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. You know, I really wanted to go abroad and learn because in you know, with wine making, it's not straightforward. You know, there's uh, what's the saying? It, it's a uh, nine ways to skin a cat or something like that, right? <laughs> where you, there's multiple ways to do things. And so I really wanted to go to, um, uh, um, a place where I felt like the wines were great. Um, I could also connect. I, I really wanted to go to a place where it spoke English so that I could make sure I get a full, you know, <laughs> get the truth on what's going on. Um, and so Australia was it. Yeah. And I was really excited to work for Molly Duker. Now, when I was doing distribution sales, um, I was part of the first team to launch this brand and the owner at the time, um, Sparky is a very passionate, energetic, um, leader really in the industry for Australia, the style of wine he was making and his viticulture practice were, were phenomenal. So I'd reached out to them and say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm coming over. You know, we, we met here and Sparky said, well, you know, we've never really hired anyone from the States before. We normally get all of our help in house, so let's see what we can do. So about, you know. 20 emails later, they decided to hire me. And so I was the first American to go work for those guys. And, uh, yeah, what a great, what a fantastic opportunity. Their right. labels really stand out. Yes. Yeah. You know, really they're, they're, they, they, they check all the boxes. I mean, yeah. If you, yeah, the marketing, the branding, the wines, um, you know, their motto there is we make wines that make people go, wow. I like that. Yeah, huh. and it's really and it's funny. You watch people try for the first time; and they're like, "Wow, that's that's really good." <laughs> <You're>
0: like, <laughs> wow, they nailed it there. Right? Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So Molly Duker is located in McLaren Vale, correct? Correct. So like South Australia area. Yes. Yeah. So what's it like living there?
2: Um, you know, it's a small town. Okay. Um, it's more of a country town. the uh, The town pub is usually the happening spot, and you know, we we definitely partake in that after work. Uh, it was great. The people are fantastic. You know, and it's um, very passionate about what they're doing. Um, yeah, i made some lifelong friends for sure.
1: So when did you come back to the States?
2: So, uh, let's see. I came back, um, right before harvest, um, here of 2010. Okay. So before I had left for Australia, I had reached out, um, actually I drove all the way from Fresno to hand deliver my resume to Spotswood. And, um, about halfway back, I get a call from them on my halfway back on my drive And they said, Hey, let's talk. Um, You know, no one's ever delivered a a resume to us before. Let's, you must be passionate about working here. And I said, well, I'm actually hopping on a plane uh, pretty soon to Australia. So can we chat while I'm there? While I was in Australia, um, you know, we, we set up the, uh, the internship and I was hired. And so as soon as I got back from Australia, I started at Spotswood.
0: So back-to-back harvest then
2: back-to-back harvest. Yes. So
0: was there a reason in particular that Spotswood stood out to you?
2: Yes. Um, Spotswood to me is one of those iconic properties. One of the, one of the best estates in Napa Valley. It's the wines are very respectful. Mm -hmm. I feel like they've never kind of shifted through some of the, the industry, um, kind of phases of, of ripeness and things like that. Um, I just found it to always be one of the, one of the most consistent Produced Cabernet's in Napa Valley mm-hmm. and I kind of a funny little story about this. Um, when I was working at the chef's table in Fresno, I had this one customer come in, his name was John. He, um, came to Fresno on business and he usually popped in about every month, a month or two, and every time he came in, he ordered Spotswood and he never asked the vintage, he never asked the score, he never asked anything about it. Just ordered Spotswood. So about four times of ordering this, I finally stopped and said, John, you know, Most people want to know more about the wine before they order it. You know, this is not a, you know, inexpensive bottle of wine. And he said, well, I'll tell you why. He said, every time I order Spotswood, I know I'm going to get a great wine. I know it's going to be high quality. And I know that when I get it and I look at the label, I say, well, so that's how the 2008 vintage was. Because I know Spotswood's always going to be true the vintage. So I love that whole concept. And shortly after, you know, I started tasting the wines. And I was like, this is the place I want to learn from.
1: Awesome. So after having that conversation with, with John at, at the restaurant, did that influence the way you want to make your wines? Absolutely. Okay.
2: The fact that someone can order a wine with just the brand name and be that confident in the quality and consistency is really where I, I see my vision. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now, does John know that you ever ended up at Spotswood?
2: No, I'd like to track down John and then <laughs> <laughs> said John, with John drinks a couple of vintages. That'd be
1: nice.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So yeah. when you, so obviously you had Spotswood on your radar, hmm. was it, were you dead set on Napa Valley or did you consider any other wine growing regions in the States or considering it, maybe going back to Australia or?
2: It was Napa. It was Napa. Yeah. So Napa, um, I've always loved the wines here. The winemaker at Fresno State, uh, he had spent a lot of time up here and he had these amazing wine cellar of all these old Napa Valley wines. And we would spend a lot of time tasting these together. And he said to me, it's like, there's just, there's no Cabernet like a Napa Cabernet. Mm-hmm. And once I moved here and started getting a sensory, I totally understand what he's are seeing. The quality and the consistency in this region is amazing. Um, so yeah, I was dead set to come here.
0: That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it really is a special place. We have our, I feel like we've got very much our own style, especially kind of seeing it come into its own here over the last several decades. I completely or so. agree. Yeah. So
1: how was the transition from Vale, which we all know it's known for Grenache, Souraz, Mouvedra. How was that transition to working with grapes like that and then coming to Napa Valley and working with a completely different set of grapes?
2: Absolutely. The, um, well, so so Molly Duker is, I mean, they're, they're a larger producing winery. I just, you know, I think 40,000 cases of that nature. So things were done on a much more macro scale. Um, you know, our processing, um, harvesting all of those, all of those nuts and bolts. And then going to Spotswood, it's like polar opposite. You know, we're picking, you know, one and two ton blocks. We're sorting all the way down to the berry, you know, picking out only the perfect berries to go in the fermentation. Very, very hands on. So it, it was definitely a different, um, a different experience. But it's what I loved. I mean, I, I like the fact that we take things down to every little detail to make, you know, the mo- best bottle of wine.
1: That's awesome.
0: And then, uh, so you had a pretty good run at Spotswood too. So right, you were there for yes. five years or so, uh, almost
2: five years, yeah.
0: Becoming the assistant winemaker, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. Wow, that's awesome! It's a pretty good intern success story, right there.
2: Yeah, I know. <laughs> when they called me shortly after that internship and, and said, "Hey, we're we're looking, um, you know, to, to interview for the assistant winemaking position," I was pretty pretty excited. And it's you know it's such an amazing family. You know, they they have what they've built and what they created there is just. Um, it's just phenomenal. And, you know, it's one of the first organic vineyards in Napa Valley. First ones to get the certification in, in the 80s. And it's just everything about it is, um, is exciting. And so, yeah, I was, I, was, I was lucky.
0: And they make a great Sauvignon Blanc, too.
2: They do. That's, <laughs> and that's really where I cut my teeth on Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, it's, the, the Sauvignon Blanc is amazing. And all the different vineyards they work with and, and how we get to really, um, you know, pull from a handful of vineyards to craft one wine is just exceptional.
1: So have you seen Napa
2: change since you moved back? Yeah, you know, um, I think people are, are, are really kind of honing in style okay. in Napa Valley. You know, there's Napa being, you know, one of the premier growing regions of the world. I think it's a lot of influence and a lot of influence from everyone trying to sometimes find that, that silver bullet and to make the best bottle of wine. So within that, we see evolution and changes with, you know, the types of barrels we're using, you know, the ripeness that things are being picked at. Um, farming practices um, viticulture techniques and I think we've kind of gone through this wave of, of almost like trends okay and now it's gone to it's getting to the point where there's everyone's looking for that pure balance where we're really matching you know the right Cooper and the right toast levels with specific blocks and vineyards um, things are gone to a very micro scale and um, you know and I almost see it almost going like a, a burgundy model where We're not just looking at this one vineyard and saying, uh, oh, the whole thing's great. We're looking with that vineyard and dissecting and saying, this one section makes wines that are probably more dense and uh, with black fruit versus this section is more lighter, more feminine with more red fruit. And so it's really just getting um, uh, detailed out, I guess, in a lot of specs. Yeah, if that makes sense.
0: I think it's an exciting time for this valley. It really is.
2: It really is. I mean, because it is a small appellation. And so I think within that, we're all just kind of looking more and more in detail on all the different aspects of it.
0: Yeah. And I yeah. feel like you've got such a great pulse on it too. Um, I feel like you, you know, so many other winemakers, <laughs> it's like you name drop anybody and it's like whether yeah. you don't know them, you know, somebody that knows them very well. Um, and it probably has to do with just being so connected into this industry. And I know, so you spent some time at Spotswood mm-hmm. and then that was about five years or so, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and then five years. Uh, your next stint was at Bukella. Yes. So that's a Howell mountain producer.
2: Yeah. So, um, Bukela is, is kind of a, a different kind of makeup, I guess, than Spotswood. Spotswood spots was really focusing around the estate vineyard. Mm-hmm. And the goal was to make, um, the best bottle of wine from that estate kind of following that signature of the vineyard each year. Now going to Bukele, Bukela is more of a style and, um, it is really more of an international brand in a lot of ways. I think the wine was uh, being sold in almost 25, 26 different countries. And so Bukela was more about density, was more about, um um, richness and all about kind of being in tune with that style each year, but also taking in the vintage and it's, um, it's characteristics. So what was great about the is I got to work with a lot of different vineyards. So we really were, um, a Cabernet producing, uh, winery, but I also got to work with Syrah, Mavedra, Mm. Carignan, Viognier uh, from a fantastic vineyard called Shake Ridge Ranch out in Amador County. Yeah. Nice. And yeah. then of course Sauvignon Blanc. I had to make sure we were we were making Sauvignon <laughs> Blanc. I think when I came on board, we were making two barrels of it. And by the time I left, we were making almost ten barrels. Yeah. So we're slowly growing that brand. Yeah.
0: That's awesome.
1: Are there any grapes that you've been wanting to work with, maybe as like a personal project?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love the grapes I get to work with now. Yeah. You know, the one I've always tried to find and 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 source from. You know, various appellations is Grenache Blanc.
1: Okay. Once again, another,
2: another high acid grape that kind of follows a similar suit to Sauvignon Blanc. You can, yeah. you can probably see where that's going. Um, yeah, when I was in college, I, you know, I occasionally go down to the Santa Barbara region and there was a couple of Grenache Blancs down there that always blew me away. And so, uh, yeah, I would like to get back to that. That's awesome. Would you
0: see that here in Napa or would you go elsewhere for that then? It's
2: a good question. It's, it's hard. I think with, um, for kind of experimental varietals like that with, uh, the price of land, yeah. Yeah. there is right. some being grown. But um, and I've reached out to these these wineries, but unfortunately, they only make it themselves; and they're not willing to sell it. So it would probably be something I would source elsewhere.
1: Yeah, that's because fair. it's it's heat tolerant, right? Yes, it is, and it still retains its acid. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I've said in the past, I think a certico would we'll go well out <laughs> here. Nobody listens to <laughs> so me. we When you become a we'll landowner in Napa Valley, you yes, can give that a go. <laughs> not anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> so from Bukela, you moved on to where you are now at Trincero Napa Valley, and now you work for some of the pioneers of Napa Valley's people that made Napa what it is today, or made honestly the United States wine industry what it is today. Exactly. And you get to work with a state-owned vineyards. You get to kind of work in both the vineyard and in the winery now. So, how do you feel about that transition?
2: It's amazing. I mean, yeah. this is really this is the position and um, the family and the brand that I've honestly been building my career for. I mean, really this is this is just bringing it all full circle. As you mentioned, Ethan, I get to work with uh, these amazing estate vineyards in multiple appellations. Now most wineries they just got, you know, one one vineyard and one appellation, maybe two, but we have we have multiple. I mean six different
1: vineyards. And we know the answer to this, but I'm sure those who are <laughs> listening uh, do not know this answer. What is one of your most exciting vineyards to work with?
2: Well, uh, let's see. That's, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, it's challenging because there's kind of apples and oranges. I mean, all have different, different personalities and uniqueness about them. But, um, you know, since we are drinking Sauvignon Blanc and, uh, all very passionate about it, I'll definitely say the, the Mary's Vineyard in Calistoga.
1: Yeah. Yes. What makes it so unique?
2: Well, you know, it's, so Sauvignon Blanc for one is, is, it's, it's hard on her to find, you know, unfortunately, um, where Sauvignon Blanc grows also Cabernet can be grown there too. So it tends to get either ripped out or you to know, redeveloped something else. Um, but then at the same time, you're generally getting, you know, maybe a four or five acre vineyard of Sauvignon Blanc. So Mary's is 34 acres and it has, you know, what uh, one and a half acres of Semillon and the rest of Sauvignon Blanc. Now within this vineyard, there's two main sections, old vines and young vines and of the old vine section. Um, we're looking at vines that are 31 years old, so you can just see, as I kind of keep continuing talking about this, this is just rare, rare, rare. As we get down to this. So finding old vines like what we have at Mary's is, is unique and special. I mean, as we're tasting the eye block here, we can just see the, the complexity and the flavors you get from old vines is, is impressive. And you normally don't always see that on the young vines. Young vines will sometimes give a brighter, more, um, kind of typical Sauvignon Blanc character that we kind of see around but nothing like the old vines. Yeah. So here I get the best of both worlds.
1: So we I'm already seeing some similarities between the wine that we're enjoying and, of course, the Marys as well. Mm-hmm. But one of them is, you said, I didn't know this, the Eye Block is dry farmed. Yes. And Marys is as well. It is, yeah. So as these vines get older, do they get better at retaining water or kind of you know, tapping into their own water source? Can you do dry farming for younger vines? It's challenging.
2: Okay. It really is. Um, you really need to establish them and get the roots to go down deep, to find their own water, uh, to get them through, you know, some of the, some of the heat that we do see here in the Valley. So old vines, yes, they are very self-regulating. And so the vines go deep, but then they also know how to know how to use their resources. So generally they're not going to grow a canopy larger than it can sustain. They also don't produce a lot of fruit that they can't ripen. So it's really just in balance and, um, and with Sauvignon Blanc, you know, I just feel like your range of flavors and aromatics are just that much more greater when you have something that's, that's self-regulating. Uh, yeah, it's, it's truly special.
0: Yeah. And I think that's interesting too, because I know like in our, um, studies, essentially like the certified sommelier, Mm -hmm. if you're going to get blinded on Sauvignon Blanc, it's coming from New Zealand, Sancerre, Bordeaux or Napa, but in Napa, it must be aged oak. That's like a characteristic style, because that's one thing that I think we've talked about too, is what is the Napa style of Sauvignon Blanc? And I feel like there's a bunch, because there's a lot of unoaked, there's, you know, Fume, and then there's the stuff in the middle. What do you think is like the style? Yeah, absolutely. And we can, I
2: mean, it's interesting because we just did a Sauvignon Blanc tasting together and and we saw the range of styles and and comments from that. Uh, Where, in, in my perspective, where Napa does the best job on Sauvignon Blanc is it's capturing vibrancy, um, but also a richness. And so what that means in aromatics is really looking at the spectrum of citrus and then both stone fruit. Huh. Now, I think if you're going to go too far in one of the, either direction, um, I don't really think it's capturing that. I love to see the, the vibrancy and the, um, the zestiness that it can have, but then that kind of white peach element following through. And then on the palate, we really have to look at the acidity, but then kind of giving a little richness to that acidity so that it actually gives it length in the wine. Yeah. And, you know, Sauvignon Blanc tends to be a varietal that people just slap into a, a stainless steel tank. They ferment it quickly. They filter it and they put it in a bottle really, you know, within a matter of, you know, four or five months post-fermentation. And I think it's something that we got to look at opposite. It really is. Let's, let's ferment it and age it in oak and also stainless steel barrels. Cause I do think that captures aromatics, but let's really kind of build this wine and craft it. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, I think you can really just, you know, make a great bottle of wine.
1: It's more than just the banquet wine.
0: So you took a couple certifications back in the day too. Mm -hmm. Were you, you were CSW and you got your certified? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So was that like pre Fresno state era or how did you end up going into that?
2: Um, so working in distribution sales, um, honestly, it was my out to keep learning Mm. It really was because what I do. if you think about it, you know, if you're interested in the wine, I mean, you can look and you can read books. Um, you know, a lot of my, my social network were not passionate about wine. Like I was, they wanted to talk about more of the, the accolades and, and the more kind of catchy things, but not really dive into the nuts and bolts of it. So I found that by taking those courses, um, it, Keeps me learning
0: for sure. Yeah, for sure. And that's like the number one thing Ethan and I always say too, is like the second you start like, oh my gosh, it's so humbling.
2: It is. Yeah, it is. It's
0: funny. Cause you can read a headline on one article that you know nothing about. It could be like a completely different industry and you're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, you think, you know, all about it. Uh, then it comes to wine <laughs> where I've spent plenty of hours trying to study and I feel like I know nothing. But yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, yeah. it's, it's so easy to dive so deep into wine
0: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, to the soil, to the aspect, to the, to the, to the, you know, the, the person who started it. And their yeah. vision and the and the struggles they went through to figure out how to make this marketable, and the highs and the lows, and then the next generation comes in and kind of puts their their uh, fingerprint on it. And yeah, there's, there's there's so many aspects.
0: So when you were in Southern California and you were selling wine and whatnot, did you have a community where you had the tasting groups? Because especially the certified, there's the whole blind tasting portion of the exam. Yep. How did you prepare for that?
2: Um, honestly, on my own. Really? Yeah, I did. I. So the best group of people outside of the montage that really were just passionate and would geek out as far as we wanted it as I could go was when I was working retail for a place called the wine club. Hmm. So the wine club is a, is a wine shop that's in the city of Tustin and it was, it was a staple because it was kind of more of a warehouse setting. And so their margins were really low. And so they had a lot of business, so they'd get wines from all over the world. And I think they were actually one of the the top burgundy wine shops in all of West Coast at one time. So the exposure of wines that came through this place were great. And these were guys that they had no problem spending their, their whole week's paycheck on a bottle of wine that they loved. Yeah. And so we would all kind of sit and geek out about wines that were on the shelf. And then, you know, at the end of the week we'd decide, Hey, let's all throw in, you know, 50, bucks. Let's buy that, that iconic wine. Let's go to a little restaurant and drink it together. And so there was a lot of that. Those are the guys that really, um, shape a lot of my, you know, um, I guess experience in wines throughout really Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, really looking at Burgundy and Bordeaux. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's cool. Cause I feel like that's something that you need and some people across the country studying for these things, like do not have that. And we're lucky here in Napa, you know, we're so immersed that we right. live in a bubble for sure. <laughs> so yeah. How yeah. do
2: you taste these really expensive wines? And then you're supposed to know, you know, mul- multiple vintages on them and yeah, how they perform. Exactly. It's, it's a, it's a challenge.
0: Yeah. No, for sure. Do you see a shift in, I mean, right now, right now it's what like 50, 50 plus give or take percent of all the vine plantings in Napa Valley are to Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. Do you see that shifting or like, do you see the wine style shifting from like just simply Cabernet to the red wines or more Cabernet Franc? Or do you see anything in particular?
2: The challenge is I think a lot of people know cab, Mm -hmm. you know, cab is king in so many ways. And I think for the marketing aspect, it's going to probably continue toward Cabernet. Sure. And I think people like to see Cabernet in a single expression, meaning a single vineyard or a single appellation. So unfortunately, no, Mm -hmm. but I do think we probably will see more, um, red wine blends because I think, you know, the industry is realizing that Malbec is a fantastic blending varietal. Cab Franc is, there is more, more people planting these, um, in smaller amounts, but, um, and that diversity is great, and but I, I, unfortunately, I really think within Napa, it's going to stay a Cabernet focused from a single spot.
1: You know, you bring up a good point, and I, to me, I love what you were saying earlier. How we're it, what you were basically saying in the transition of Napa style is that we're moving away from just trying to be like Bordeaux, and we're moving towards a Burgundy style. But really, what we're doing is we're we're still defining what we are but i think we're starting to understand what napa is there is a napa style there is a napa cab but what you just said to me is really the main difference besides like the climate the people etc of (laughs) bordeaux between napa and bordeaux is that they rarely ripen malbec they rarely ripen petit for but we can year in and year out ripen them produce high quality Malbec and Petit Verdot grape varieties and Cab and use that as a vital part of a blend. Do you see more single varietal Malbecs being produced or is that really, you think that's just going to stick to Argentina?
2: No, I think we'll see it as a, as a blending varietal. I, yeah. I don't see a lot of single bottling. Blend. Just for one, there's just not a lot of it. Yeah. And then, you know, vintage variation, things like that that we'll see, um, but no, I think, I think this is truly a Cabernet region and it will continue to kind of be the flagship varietal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what made put Napa on the map in the first place. So it is, yeah. and, you know,
2: like that professor, um, uh, that I had, he says that, and I've heard a lot of people from all over the world say this, Cabernet is truly unique in Napa Valley and a lot of people I think in regions look at it to try and sometimes mirror it, but, um, it's climate, um. You know, its soil profiles, which are some of the most diverse soil profiles in the world, truly is Cabernet. And um, the density, uh, the richness, I mean, it's hard, to, it's hard to get. You're in, you're out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now you get to make wine in one of the best, you know, most renowned regions for know, that. Yeah, which is awesome. We're lucky. Pinch ourselves, right? Yeah, yeah. no kidding. No kidding. Um, so now that you've been out here for a while and you've been able to establish yourself, looking back, would you say that there's any kind of people that you looked after, any role models um, that really helped you out?
2: Yeah, so this industry is wonderful. Everyone is is always willing to kind of lend a hand, you know, pass off advice, um, help when we're all kind of up against the wall wondering, should we pick, should we not? Uh, you know, offer advice on different techniques and stuff. It's a, it's a very great industry, and I'm very thankful for, for all the support the industry has given me. Um, you know, there's three people that I think throughout my career, especially here in Napa Valley, that have been very um influential on me and has really helped me kind of grow as a winemaker. Uh so the first person would be Aaron Wankoff, who's the winemaker and vineyard manager at Spotswood. Uh Brad Grimes, who's the winemaker at Abreu Vineyards. And then Kristen Lowe, who's um uh a vineyard consultant who owns her own company called Vine Balance. And so kind of going through those. So so first off, Aaron, you know, Aaron is is one of the most intelligent people I've met in my life. He's he's well rounded. You could ask him about anything. He just, he has insight and knowledge. Um, he's very much an old soul and when he kind of attacks different, you know, things in the vineyard or in the winery, he's very confident in his ability to kind of understand things. Um, and I'm the opposite. So I don't know if the, the term old or young soul is, <laughs> is, is a, uh, a term, but that's definitely me. I need to taste it. I need to try it. I need to push the envelope. You know, if, uh, if the university says, this is how things are done. I need to do it myself to truly understand. And so at Spotswood, you know, when I came on board, you know, there was a, a, a way and a, and a theory about how the wines and the vines are grown at Spotswood. but Aaron allowed me to trial. He allowed me to really look at all the different pieces of what we were doing and, and truly understand it. And so for that, I mean, he was, it was huge. I mean, I feel like I have confidence, but I also have knowledge on why I do things. And that's, that's definitely a tribute to Aaron. And then kind of next person on my list, Brad. So Brad is, you know, he's, he's, he's so talented. He works with grape vineyards, um, but he's just, he's one of the most committed winemakers I've ever met. Now, there's not many winemakers in Napa Valley that truly make their wine from grape to bottle. Brad racks his own wines. He does his own blends. Uh, he washes his own barrels. I've never seen someone so hands-on. And he is a very much as intuition based, um, winemaker who, you know, a lot of times he'll tell you, Hey, this is what we did in 2008 and it worked. You know, he's one of his sayings. He always says to me that I appreciate is, is don't overthink it, you know, use your gut and go forward. Um, so he's, he's someone that's kind of been through, you know, with me through a lot of my career. Um, we've worked on a lot of blends together and I really just have a, a lot of respect for him. And so the third person, um, that's just been very influential in my career is uh, Kristen Lowe. So Kristen Lowe is um, a vineyard consultant and she owns Vine Balance. And so I started working with Kristen at Spotswood. Kristen has uh, the wonderful approach of both kind of science and observation. You know, anytime you have a question, well, why is this happening? She'll she'll give you the complete breakdown, um, the science breakdown of it. But then she'll also tell you you know, her advice. And a lot of times that advice is, first and foremost, not to panic, which I think we do a lot of times in Napa Valley. It's really to look at it from our perspective on what can we do? How can we change it? And, um, and let's observe, let's just see what happens. And so I actually brought on Kristen to work with me, Bukela for about three years and, you know, at that time I was working with 14 different vineyards. And so getting her perspective on the Valley and these unique sites was just amazing. And so really she's, uh, yeah, just a very supportive person.
0: That's awesome. And I think that's so cool. You have people from all different parts of this industry, but you surround yourself with some people that are so talented and have been around the block a few times. Um, but you also are very hands on yourself too. So you definitely feel like bring in aspects of all throughout this industry. And I think that definitely shows in your drive and your work ethic too. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, we get a lot of times, just one choice a year on a lot of things we do. Right. And so if you think about it over your career, maybe you get to make that decision 30 times. So you really need to bring in perspective and history and advice to, to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, yeah, she's definitely that person.
1: That's the best part about this industry. Mm -hmm. Especially here in Napa Valley, there's what? Over 450 wineries alone in Napa Valley. It's a very small region too. And you would think with that amount of different wineries that there'd be, you know, pretty intense competition. But it seems like there's so much camaraderie and so much collaboration between people you think should be your competitor, but you're working together because, you know, I know the uh, Napa Valley Vintners has that saying, you know, rising tide raises all ships. yes And that is one philosophy that I think has stuck in this valley. And I think every year it just keeps getting stronger and stronger, especially with some of the difficulties that we have to deal with out here. People just keep getting closer and closer together. I think it's amazing. It really is.
2: I totally agree. You know, it's, it's, it's a small appellation, but, um, one thing that I come do is, you know, during harvest if something, something's happening, you know, I call friends and Hey, what's, what are you guys seeing? What are yeah. you seeing over in Calistoga? What are you seeing down in, um, down in Rutherford? Let's, let's talk about this because a lot of times, you know, decisions you can make as a group are, are really, um, You know, kind of the most important,
1: you know, you come up with a lot of good ideas while you're drinking together with some people. And uh, I I think it's only fitting that the same thing happens with the people that are making the alcohol that you will then drink to come up with ideas together. And I think that's how this Valley is going to continue to evolve is having people like you meeting up with these other, you know, people that are influential and passionate about this industry to continue to make napa valley greater than what it is and it's already great one of the greatest wine regions of the world but it you know it can always get better and I, I think that's amazing and you know it's funny when you yeah. talking about brad and you say like oh well in 2008 we did this well 2008 was 13 years ago yep you know i can't remember what i had for breakfast i didn't eat hard, breakfast. Right? i do remember um but it, it's it's interesting because it shows that like this isn't just a routine they're doing day in and day out, that is just, it's just, it's not mindless. It, it, you really, when you're passionate about something and it, it, it affects your emotions, you're more likely to remember it. So he can remember something from 13 years ago of a winemaking practice that he did. And everybody knows how hectic harvest is. You know, you probably, if you didn't care, you probably wouldn't remember half the stuff that happens in those three hectic months. But the fact that he could say, oh, yeah, I did that 13 years ago. And I'm seeing the same thing now. It, 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 that stands out to me.
2: Yeah, you know, most of the you know, colleagues of mine and, and the people I mentioned, um, it's, a, it's a lifestyle. So, you know, winemakers, they're not in this just to work a nine to five and have you know, their normal life afterwards. It's, um, it's constant. And so I think when you're so um, enriched in this as it doesn't matter, you know, you never clock in, clock out. It's, this is just um, something you live with and it's a passionate that people do remember things more because they're significant in their lives. Yeah.
0: I love that. Well, and you said you have a, uh, say you have like 30 times to make these decisions, you know, as yes. a winemaker, we're on what, like year 11 or so. So <laughs> yeah. I think you, you've, got a, you've done really good over the last 11 years, thank you, uh, thank but you've you. got uh, still got a lot more ahead of you too, Absolutely. which is well, very exciting. My
2: saying is, um, none of this is really going to ever make sense until I'm 75 years old, sitting on a porch (laughs) on a porch. Okay. This is a key element on a porch. You have to have a porch. Yeah, exactly. Drinking wines that I was involved in over my career. And because like, like we just said, you know, you have one time a year to make these decisions, there's so many variables involved, right? Yeah. You know, we've, we've, we've had some, some challenging vintages of the last, you know, five, six years that, um, are things that you ask, you know, old timers in this industry that's been there, you know, making wine for 30, 40 years and they're scratching their heads saying, Landon, I've never seen this before. You know, so, so really, yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's a group effort. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful industry and yeah, looking forward to the future.
1: Do you have any wines from your Fresno state days that you saved? Did, uh, did, yes. Did well, I mean, a couple students get wine.
2: So yes, I mean, you can get wine from the school. Um, okay. I did make a couple side projects Oh, that, um, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a young so i have to, I can make it at the school winery, but I really wanted like absolute full control. So, um, yeah, have you heard of the winery Cass it's in Paso Robles? I have not. No, okay. So it's a, it's a producer of Syrah Grenache. And um, I was on a quest to get a half ton of fruit to make my own barrel. And so I literally sent out like 30 emails saying, you know, starving student looking for fruit. And um, Cass Winery responded and said, yes, be here and we'll um, we'll get you a half ton. So that uh, was my first like true venture of like a, f- a full barrel, which was Syrah. And yeah, I still have a couple bottles, but I think those are more for just to put on the shelf and look at, than to drink. <laughs> <all time> <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I want to dive into those That's quite awesome. yet. Yeah, but <laughs> it was, so. it was a great project. Yeah.
1: Would you ever want to work with Syrah again?
2: Absolutely. Ethan. Yeah. Yep.
1: What about Nebbiolo?
2: Oh no, now you're really, now you're really, uh, <laughs> I know you touching well. the heart here. Yeah. Yeah, Nebbiolo. I mean, it's, you know, you know, I've, we both have actually all talked about this, um, fantastic varietal and is Napa the place where it would grow well? I don't know. Uh, would it be fun to try? Absolutely. You know, it's one of those varietals that's so delicate yet so powerful, and it's, that's this perfect Mary of both acid and tannin. So yes, maybe, um, maybe when I'm seventy five, I'll retire in in Piedmont, and get a vineyard, and <laughs> and dive into that.
1: I always say that. Uh, it, this is my own perspective. Nebbiolo is like the uh, the very gentle yet angry and experienced grandfather of Pinot Noir. Like Ooh, you look at it, like it that. looks like a aged Pinot Noir. It looks like you look in the glass, you're like this is not gonna it's, it's very simple it's delicate and then you know it's it smells like everything but fresh fruits yes. it, but it's still so sophisticated and complex and and, and it's a youth it, it will rip your face off with tannins and your mouth will be drooling with all that acidity but as it develops it just becomes even more and more sophisticated so
2: yes i completely agree it's, it has like a seduction almost to it like yeah. you just Your, your mind's telling, you no because of how it looks. And like you said, the color, usually on old Bordeaux, you're like, wow, this has got to be done, but then you taste it. You're like, wow, this is, this is totally on point. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very unique varietal. Um, I I like the angry grandfather. That's good. That's a good point. Yeah. You can use that. I will. I think
0: I'm, uh, I'm glad you don't speak Italian, though, or else you might have been an intern in Piedmont and never come back. So <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, that's good
1: so point. you brought a blind for us today. So we got a fun wine for you. Is that I'm our curious your thoughts on this. It
2: okay. Has quite the color. Um, yeah. So as you can tell, I decanted this prayer before we got here because this is one of those wines I think it really starts to show its potential around five years old. And we're a little shy of that. Interesting. Yes. And it is. It's a wine that also needs to kind of open up. I think if it's too cold, we're going to really hide those, um, those layers of flavors and aromas. And so we decant this. So it's probably been what, about an hour and a half now sitting here. And this wine I had, I had a 2014 of this when I was in Bordeaux on a trip that, uh, that the waiter recommended. And I had it with oysters and it was like a wow moment. Let's taste it. It is, and so I think this is one of the top 100 wines out of Europe. I would say if if I said Matt and Ethan, you guys you guys got to nail all 100. This would be on there, okay?
0: Yep. all 100. Awesome, <laughs> all
2: 100. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm excited. You know, we were challenge. We you guys were, can knock that out in a month. I'm sure, right? <laughs> <laughs> we were blinded on a uh, a retsina the other day. Ooh. I'm not Okay. <laughs> that does not make the top. You know 100. the
2: varietal. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs> you know the varietal. Um, I I'd be curious if you've had this producer, um, or this wine before. Maybe. Okay. Yeah.
0: Wow. Here we go. All right, I'm let's so do excited.
1: It. Yeah. It's, a uh, our, our friend poured us this, the wine and I, I've never had a cena, but I was like, this smells like Christmas tree mm-hmm. cologne, but yeah, it, it's, it's very, it's very unique. And I, um,
2: on my backpack, backpacking trip across Europe, I did go to Santorini hmm. and I did taste the wines there, um, which were good. They were very high acid, but I was also on a backpackers budget. So let's just say I wasn't, I wasn't buying the best of the best. Um, <laughs> Unique. Yeah, I definitely love to explore Greece more often.
0: That's amazing. All right, so moving into this wine here in the glass. I mean, it's got quite the color on it. It's like gold, amber almost, too.
2: Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah,
0: I know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this is an interesting wine.
2: It is. It is. So, there's there's a lot that goes into this, which is why I brought it. Okay. To me, this is this is the ultimate craft. Okay. Yeah. This this producer has Kind of f- found a rhythm with his viticulture practices as winemaking that makes this wine truly unique each year, each vintage. Um, when it's young, when it's aged, all of those factors.
1: I think I, I think I know the pro- I think I know the producer. Let's let's hear it. So um, I'm gonna edit this out because I don't want to sound like an idiot. But I'm taking like a like pretty I'm taking I'm reaching on this one. This is not Bordeaux. This is Loire Valley. Okay. Nicholas Jolie.
2: Bam.
0: Wait, really?
1: Yeah, he's like nice he's like the guy nice for work. for viticulture in Loire Valley. I mean, this it's is obviously nice this is yes. obviously Shannon yes. Blanc. But Nicholas Jolie the- is like the guy in for Chenin Blanc in yeah. Loire Valley. Yeah. You you brought us this isn't inc- I've never had Nicholas Jolie. This is like this is a very, very high end wine here. This is impressive.
2: This, yeah. So this is, um, this is his top wine that, that he does. And wow. it's really, um, I mean, if you guys are ready for it now, but we can kind of go in the nuts and bolts. It's, these are the type of wines and the things that are really special when, you know, it's, I love, I look at winemaking as 50% intuition, 50% fermentation science, right? Yeah. You got to battle both. If you go all to the intuition, you're not truly understanding what's going through with your wine. So it's hard to really be consistent. When you're all science, you make wine. So textbook that it's boring. You got to be in the middle. And here's a guy that kind of has that balance and he's done things over the years and slowly kind of perfected what he does, where a lot of winemakers or viticulturists would be like, absolutely not. That's too risky. There's no way I would do that. You're opening yourself up for issues, but he's found a system that works. That crafts amazing wines. He's
1: biodynamic.
2: He is. Is this cool? Nice it is. <laughs> Nice Come, on. Oh my nice Come on, nice work! on, yeah.
1: I, I, honestly, uh, we're we're truly honored. Uh, I know I'm speaking for Maddie too. Oh, of truly course. honored for you to bring us this wine. You did not have to bring us a wine of this quality. No, we, we got to dive this into this.
2: Is, hey, there's with you two. That's this is what we got to
1: open. You know, God. we've uh, so
0: let's talk about it.
1: So let's dive into this. Yeah. So um, what do you get? All, I mean, it, it, it's so every time I go into the, the nose of this, it just keeps changing. And you're gonna have to keep a glass by your
2: desk today, okay? Yeah. Sure. yeah, So you got to just Buy keep less. going and see where it goes. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. So you're, you're getting like a lot of stuff. You're getting lanolin, you're getting honeysuckle, you're getting. Yeah. Um,
1: I get this like candy ginger kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, so that's like a good one. I like that. Too. Yes. This is, it's very, um, you know, it's funny. It, it's, I want to see, it, say it has that character of Lee stirring, but it's not the same thing. It to me it smells like um like a, a croissant that just came out of the oven. I don't know. It's very interesting. Yeah. It has a like sweet, doughy kind of character to it. So it's... it is
2: being aged and fermented in barrel. Yeah. Um, from what I read. But I don't I'm sure it's extremely used oak, but I'm sure there's still some of those um flavors that are coming out in it. And it's probably the the uh, Lee's aging as well. Taste it though. So what's uh. interesting is for me when I smell this and then I go to taste it I'm expecting there to be some residual sugar and maybe a very um, almost kind of sweet and viscous wine, but it's not. Yeah, and it's it's kind of confusing because my mind's like, hey, what just what just went on there? This is this doesn't back up what you're smelling, but that's where this wine is just so unique and complex.
1: Um, yeah, you know, I I it's kind of a weird descriptor, but and this is this is very pleasing to me for some reason. I don't know what the connection is, but you ever cook with champagne vinegar? No, I haven't. You ever had it? I'm sure you had it. Maddie. I mean, yeah, yeah, it has that, it has a little bit of it's this wine kind of has a little bit of that smell, which I feel like lifts a lot of the other aromatics on this wine. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't smell like vinegar, but it has like this sweet kind of like VA character to it. Yes. That
2: and I would think that the levels would be not over the top, but probably elevated. Yeah. So he's really big in doing um, indigenous yeast mm-hmm. and his fermentations take taken over from two to four months. Now with that, there's a lot of things happening, right? Yeah. It's not just one yeast strain taken over. There's, um, multiple. And so there is a lot of nuances and things being developed with that. Sometimes you can get a little bit of elevated VA because of it. Um, but I think the wine is, yes, yeah, it's, it's truly unique at that. So that two to four month fermentation, most winemakers would be like, uh-uh, it ain't happening. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're opening yourselves up for a lot of, Potential risk, you know, your fermentation could go south very fast. Uh, he has probably a, a culture or a strain that is dominating this that he actually has in his winery. So once again, it's his own in-house, you know, kind of rhythm.
0: So you made a comment earlier about how you would expect to have that residual sugar on the palate, and I feel that there is that richness though, I and mean, maybe because the acidity is so high that that really masks it. So I wouldn't really call it off-dry, yeah. but it definitely—I feel like it has that so that richness on the palate. Like some Rieslings even too, when it has maybe like, there might be a touch of RS, but you can't perceive it because the yeah. acidity is so high. Yep. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Buster. No, hundred percent.
2: Yeah, definitely. No, it's, um, point, you know, when you have high acid wines, I mean, I think in, in, New Zealand, they, it's pretty typical to have three, four, five grams of sugar yeah. because acid levels are so high and it brings it back. So no, I think that's a very good comment.
1: <laughs> I was talking about Sauvignon earlier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I and mean, just hammered on it. Just hammered on it. Poor years. Were you
1: smirking at me at all? What I was saying? i just <laughs>
2: keeping quiet over here, just, you know, going through it.
1: Hey, And then not... I think you
2: talked about Oak, too, with uh,
1: with Chenin Blanc. Yeah. But it's well, okay. Well, it's funny because um, Vuvray is usually that region in Loire Valley that has botrytis mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, affects the grapes. And that's, you know, some of the character of not all Vuvrays, but some Vuvrays, depending on the vintage, um, will have a lot of, like, botrytis character to them. Sauvignon is not really the same. It's it's a region that's further west than than Vouvray, and yes, it can experience botrytis, but it's not nearly as common. But I, I to me, this has has to have some kind of botrytis. So for
2: the the grapes, this is a ripe this is a riper style, and he yeah. is picking it ripe. And I think he's literally looking for that full maturity. Um, they also are making several passes. I think it's on average six to seven passes wow. for picking, looking for the mature grapes. So if there were some botrytis, I would
1: not be surprised. Yeah, yeah, in this. See, growing up, my favorite juice was apple juice. This is apple juice. I'm not kidding you. there was <laughs> the a best ve- version of it. In my high school there, there was, was a yeah. vending machine in my high school that was we had this like little common area that everybody would eat lunch. No one ate lunch in the cafeteria. We'd eat all we'd all eat lunch in the, the common area. And there was a vending machine. And I don't even know the name. It's not a common brand, but they had an apple juice in this vending machine. And I am not kidding you. Almost every single day in the four years in high school, besides the days I skipped class. Sorry, mom, if you're listening. Um, I made it, though. I made it, mom. Um, I would have an apple juice. And I think, I don't know, I love apple juice so much. And then people were like, oh, you're going to have arsenic poisoning. Whatever. Um, it didn't work out. I didn't have arsenic poisoning. But He's good, guys. To me, going way back. This this wine smells like... <laughs> the best apple juice you could ever have.
0: Interesting. It's like an apple
1: juice made by God.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Apple (laughs) juice by God. By God, yes. Oh, my God. Um, That's got to go to back label,
1: right? Um,
0: (laughs) No, but it does have that slight honeyness. It has that earthy character, too. Spice, too.
1: Wait so okay so you were in Bordeaux as a as a college student and some no, 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 in some sort of this in life
2: this is when we could actually afford you know, uh, decent wine I was, yeah. well I was about to say like
1: <laughs> what service trying to sell a college kid on I slept on, <laughs> I
2: slept on the uh, streets in Bordeaux for a week so I could buy this wine yeah, <laughs> yeah what's next I want
1: you to drink Didier Dagueneau too exactly, right? right
0: so did you enjoy this in Bordeaux with oysters I did yeah I did wow
2: now yeah it was um you know it, and it's it was a, it was a long dinner as they kind of do you know in Europe um. And so the wine, I, I kept it in a glass and had other wines as well. But it just continued to evolve and unique. And I just, I, and there's something that's very captivating about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, if you would have put, you know, the first taste in front of me, and then and then the taste, you know, at the end of the meal, I would have said there were two different wines. Like it's amazing how this wine changes, which I think is really unique, because as we've kind of talked about, white wines are sometimes always looked at as kind of simple, quick, and drink them, and. You know, it can be the focal point for a dinner. It can be the focal point for your evening, um, to really, you know, taste the wine over a couple hours and just see all the different aspects to it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So a couple other kind of fun facts about this. Yeah. So the vineyard was planted in 1130 by monks, and I I think I read somewhere that this has seen over 900 consecutive vintages.
0: So Ethan loves it already. Yeah. He loves monks. So Maddie says one day I'm going to be a monk in (laughs) chartreuse. There you go.
1: That's where I'm going next.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. 11.30. Uh, 11.30. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That's amazing. Yeah. And so um, I think they converted this to biodynamic in 1982 or 84, somewhere around there. Wow. And he is definitely one of the the, the biggest advocates for farming this way. Um, going back to Bordeaux, actually, on that same <laughs> trip, um, crazy enough, the next day, he was talking at this one's um, uh, show I went to. I know. It's kind of ironic, right? Um, and I wouldn't listen to him speak. There's an interpreter, so it was kind of hard to, to get all the nuts and bolts, but you can just see his enthusiasm for farming this way. And he really wants to eliminate the kind of the monoculture with growing grapes to where, you know, if you look at about it about just in food production in general in the States, you know, they want no competition from other weeds. They want to give it all its nutrients. They want it very dependent on, on farming so that it, it mass produces. He's the opposite. He wants native plants. He wants livestock. Um, he wants compost. He really wants to, to put all these factors in. So, um, in theory, the vine works, but it's also kind of in harmony. Yeah. Um, yeah, just just pretty just pretty unique in general.
1: I'm better at blinding white wine than red wine. Yeah, that was a, that was a pretty
2: impressive there, Ethan. Um
1: wow. What vintage is it? This has got some age. Can I? Well hey sense. you're you're half you're almost all the way
2: there, so I can't I can't take that from you. You are you saying guess. it's
0: not quite five years though, right? Didn't you say that? Or maybe I made that up.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, not quite five. <laughs> <laughs> not quite too. five years, so oh, yeah.
0: so it's four and a half. Four and a half years. Okay. Is that right? Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I'd be intrigued to taste this in ten years.
0: Yes. This is awesome.
1: I gotta buy more Loire Valley. It's that's I, I love Loire Valley. One, it's such a large region; it shouldn't really be considered one region. Um, yeah, I, I think that's really the first place I'd go to if I go to France. Loire, huh? Besides Paris, because I gotta fly in there, and I wanna go to Normandy. But the fact that like all these beautiful chateaus are just along the river because this is where people, the, all the elites used to go, all the noble people used to go vacation and. There's such a variation of wine styles. I mean, you go the furthest west, you have these, like, lower alcohol, high acid, really almost salty, lazy Muscadets that – and then you keep going east and you get stuff like this. And then it's just – and then you get and eventually you get into the red wines like the Cap Francs are elegant, a little rustic and dirty at the, but pretty at the same time and then – you have some really recognized producers that come out of this region. Absolutely. Nicholas D'Oli is one of them.
2: And you can imagine, how many don't make it to the States, right? How many do we not to see because their production's,
1: you know, you, you, cases? You right? rarely find this. In this. I mean, you really have to look for this wine. Where'd you get this wine? Psalm Select.
0: Oh, When do they have that?
1: A
2: special connection, I guess. I'm on that right now.
0: Uh, one thing else also interesting about this, it's 15% alcohol. You mentioned yes. that it was picked right, but it's so well integrated. Yes. This is
2: 15% alcohol. Yeah. yeah isn't that impressive? Yeah. And see, that's, what's interesting about alcohol. Um, I like alcohols to be lower, mainly so that we can have a second glass and maybe even a third, if you're feeling great. Right. Um, but really does the wine hold up to the alcohol? I mean, we've all had wines that, you know, you're like, wow, this is really hot and you look at it, it's like 10%, 12%, whatever. Uh, if the wine can handle it to me, that's, that's in balance. That's mm-hmm. in check. Right. Yeah. And there's like, you guys have both said, I'm surprised by 15%. You know? Sure.
0: Sure. Well, Landon, I think we should do this more often if this is what it's going to entail. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Here we go. I block in this, uh, it's pretty special. So thank you so much for joining us here today. Um, probably see you around later on today, tomorrow, whatnot. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to but-
2: check in and see what you guys thought on that, uh, the uh, Jolie wine, okay? Tell so yeah. See how, how, how it works out in your glass.
0: No, I love this. I, honestly, both of them are progressing beautifully in the glass, too. Um, goes to show, drink more white wine, right? Absolutely. But um, but we really appreciate you joining us here today. And um, we're super excited for what you're doing at Trinqueiro and really look forward to more wines coming down the pipeline.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. This has been great. Thank you for joining us. And uh, thank you again, folks, for tuning in to the Vine to Mind podcast.
0: Cheers.